Once upon a time, there were four little rabbits. How old are you, Johnny? She asked. Sixteen. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. It For was the day. best of times. It was the worst of times. A wise old king once said, of the making of books, there is no end. How true today. Of the overabundance of writing published each year, what's worth reading? The answer is simple. Read only the best. Come join the discussion on Just the Best Literature. Well, hello again, everyone. Thanks for listening in today. Well, with me in the studio today is my producer, Mr. Dan Arnfeld. Good afternoon, Dan. Hello. Good to have you with me. It's always great to have Dan. He knows how to push the right buttons and get the electrics working and all that stuff. So, so anyway, well, I do have one comment for today, and I'm really excited about this. This is uh, Karen from Pennsylvania. Now, Karen, uh, Karen likes to write to me, and it's really nice to have, have her write. She says, hi, I'm still listening to your program about young Winston Churchill, and I'm, I'm happy to hear that. It's, I know this book is getting a little long, and uh, uh, I'm wanting to try and get it done a little bit faster, and then I want to move on to something different. And I think we're going to do next, the next book is on the Boer War. And I think you'll see why I want to do that after today's program. So uh, uh, anyway, uh, she goes on to say, In my career, I worked in a veteran's hospital. It was unique with many, mostly men, and the hospital took great care of and honored them at every opportunity. And a friend and co-worker of mine from India would keep... Um, would send my son chicken curry sometimes when she made extra. She says it was delicious. So, so the reason why Karen's mentioning that is that that uh, one of the the nurses there in the the hospital was also uh, from India, and so here we're talking a lot about India here in the book as well. So, thank you, Karen, for sending that, and uh, you can you can send uh, more if you want. And I understand also that Karen is also listening to the Shakespeare program. So, so hopefully we'll get some more from that as well. Well, I ended the last podcast at the top of page 146. Now, for a quick review, I think we should just remember that, that what was going on there is that Winston went through this harrowing experience escaping from the swashbuckling, wild, bloodthirsty Pathan swordsman. <laughs> uh, it, it was interesting. He, you know, there for a minute, I, I, I kind of chuckled at it, at it. He thought, well, he won the high school uh, contest, you know, sword contest. So he thought he could take on the Pathans, but then there ended up be about 20 of them. <laughs> and he realized he had to run. And so uh, it was... Uh, Really, very, very dangerous time. Then, also at the top of this page, 146, he also writes, and I think it was, it's a really good point. He said, I saw for the first time the anxiety, stresses, and perplexities of war. It was not apparently all a gay adventure. And so he finally realized, I mean, he just, he just lusted to be in this fight. And a lot of the other young guys, that's what they all want to do is be in the fight. But it really turned out it was pretty seriously, you know, a very damaging thing because a lot of a lot of the British were killed at this time. Also, I think you ought to remember that at the same time, remember the British general still had not returned. 
and he was out fighting another bunch of the Pathans. And uh, it was getting dark, and uh, everybody was getting concerned. Remember, there was a group of, of leading uh, uh, army pro uh, professionals there, and, and actually they, they invited Winston in to help make a decision on what they were going to do. How You know, it's getting dark. Uh, they were in very dangerous terrain. It was not a, a, an easy place to be. And, of course, uh, I think Winston wanted to go get the general right away, and they, they all said no. It's a, it could be a disaster. And so, uh, you know, the final decision was made how to help the general the next day. And remember, Winston was so excited to be included in that decision-making process. Now, I think it's also interesting. This is right there on page 146, too, as well. And it said, it was now past midnight, and I stepped soundly, booted and spurred for a few hours. So, so, so Winston, it seems like he, he was really a sensible guy. And, you know, once everything was decided, once they were in their beds, you know, he could, he could just fall asleep and he could sleep, you know, he slept for a few hours. And, uh, it's that kind of, situation that we all need to be able to do. I mean, there's a lot of trouble going on in the world right now. I mean, there's there's a lot of frustration. Uh, you know, the economy is not great. I know we just found out that they're, you know, increasing our mortgage payment because of the insurance rates are going up for houses and because of construction costs are going up. And, uh, you know, we, we just kind of started calling and say, what are you guys talking about? Why, why is this happening? And we pulled the senior trip. We said, hey, we're seniors. Why are you doing this? You know, our house payment's going up uh, $200 a month. Uh, you know, it, it's just crazy. But then we, we got it worked out where there's ways that uh, we can fix it. And a lot of it was just because of the home insurance. So uh, uh, anyway, uh, after all the fuss that we had for a few a few hours, maybe, then I was able to sleep well last night. That's that's where I'm trying. That's what I'm driving for. All right. Now, what I want to do for today's program, let's start at the second paragraph on page 146. And uh, uh, it, it's really an interesting paragraph. It says, uh, uh, again, this is this is my page 146. Hopefully, you have it open. But it says he he wakes up the next morning and he says the open pan of the valley had no terrors for us in daylight and so so he's he's still hitting pretty hard on the idea that he was terrified <laughs> he was terrified by what happened and uh you know there if you remember you know, just a few pages back he said they wanted to they wanted to shoot at us and we wanted to shoot at them and it was going to be all this fun and it really turned out it wasn't so much fun um uh, he said there's no more terrors when they woke up the next day. He said, we found the general and his battery bunched up in a mud village. He had had a rough time. He was wounded in the head, but not seriously. Overtaken by the darkness, he had thrown his force into some of the houses and improvised a sort of fort. So so here they are in a, in a mammoth, uh, I'd say, neighborhood with all their houses and all that. And he said the Malmuts had arrived in the village at the same time. And all night long, a fierce struggle had raged from house to house and in the alleys of this mud labyrinth. The assailants knew every inch of the ground perfectly. They were fighting in their own kitchens and parlors. 
Remember now, all the, the, the uh, Malmut force that was there, they all took the homes. They took over the homes. And he said, uh, these guys knew exactly where they were. They knew, they, they knew where they were in their houses. He said, the defenders simply hung on where they could in almost total darkness without the slightest knowledge of the ground or buildings. And so, so you can see that that wasn't necessarily the best fort they had. But I don't think they expected the tribesmen to come back. He says the tribesmen broke through the walls or clambered on the roofs, firing and stabbing with their long knives. It was a fight in a rabbit warren. So, so I don't know how many of you know what a rabbit warren is, but it's when they, they have their, their, their homes are in a tunnel in the ground, you know. So, so you remember now, these are all mud huts. So he's saying this is like fighting in a rabbit warren. And he said, men grappled with each other, shot each other in error. Cannon were fired as you might fire a pistol at an enemy two or three yards away. Four of the 10 British officers were wounded. A third of the sappers and the gunners were casualties, and nearly all of the mules were dead or streaming with blood. The haggard faces of the surviving officers added the final touch to this grim morning scene. However, it was all over now, so we proceeded to shoot the wounded mules and have breakfast. <laughs> so they're de very definitely British. They have to have breakfast. Now, it doesn't say they had tea, but if it was a good British guy... He had his tea. All right. So he says, when we all got back to camp, our general communicated by heliograph. And I thought, that's interesting. So I had to look that up by heliograph. It's not telegraph. You know, it's not by uh, internet. <laughs> it was by heliograph. And, and essentially what that was at the time, and you could see that technology was beginning to really move forward. But it was a signaling device by which sunlight is reflected in, in flashes from a moving mirror. So, so it's, it's like they're, they're communicating by telegraph, only it's by a mirror and they're flashing signals that mean something. And so, so they could communicate. And so, so here, Sir Bindon uh, is the one that is you know, flashing signals. It says, Sir Bindon and our leading brigade had themselves been heavily attacked the night before. They had lost hundreds of animals. So, so in other words, the general was contacting Sir Bindon, and they were having a, whole, a, a horrible uh, night as well. They lost hundreds of animals, 20 or 30 men, but otherwise were none the worse. Sir Bindon sent orders that we were to stay in the Mammoth Valley and lay it waste with fire, sword, and vengeance. And sword and vengeance. So, so you can see that, that the British, you know, military, there weren't pushovers. And they needed to control the, this rebellion for the Indian government. They needed to get control of it. And, uh, you know, so the only way they could get control of the, you know, the, the Payton people was to destroy their villages, destroy their livelihood, you know, destroy their, their wells. And so, so, you know, if you, if you don't get yourself under control of the government, they're saying you're going to pay. So thus, accordingly, we did, but with great precautions, we proceeded systematically village by village. And we destroyed the houses, filled the wells, blew, blew the towers, cut down the great shady trees, burned the crops, 
broke the reservoirs in punitive devastation so long as the villages were in the plain, this was quite easy. The tribesmen sat on the mountains and sullenly watched the destruction of their homes and means of livelihood. When, however, we had to attack the villages on the sides of the mountains, they resisted fiercely, and we lost for every village two or three British officers and 15 or 20 native soldiers. Whether it was worth it, I cannot tell. At any rate, at the end of a fortnight, the valley was a desert, and honor was satisfied. And so, so that is the devastation of war. That's what happens, and uh, uh, you know it. it, uh, it it's it's too bad. And even Winston's being honest there. He says, "Was it worth it? Was it worth all this?" He says, "I cannot tell." And uh, you know, so so the the Malmud Valley and the Pathan people really really did experience some tough stuff, and I think they did come around and. Uh, and uh, start to obey the government. Now, I want to turn now to, to uh, page 148, and this is this is chapter 12, and it's the Tira expedition is the title of it. And uh, you know what? The, there's something really interesting about this chapter, and um, the the Tira Mountains. I, I think I I may have talked a little bit about this last time, uh, but the Tira Mountains they they lie between the Khyber Pass. And the uh, the Kanak Valley in Pakistan, and so so essentially they are going to conduct a war in it, it's like Afghanistan, and it's like an Afghan war. And I think I mentioned this before that you know we've had our trouble with Afghanistan, and uh, you know it, it turned out badly for us because the of our mistakes you know it's because of what our president did just left everything there but the british had already experienced something very similar anyway and so when you're when you're dealing with some of these indigenous peoples i mean you're they're they're going to fight for their own you know their own property and uh uh so uh again this is this is uh one of those areas and i think um I even was had, had read an article from Mr. Flurry that boy that we ought to really watch <laughs> going into Afghanistan because of what happened to Winston Churchill and the British. So the top of this page it says, in the re- rearrangements which we entailed by our losses on September 16th, I was as an emergency measure posted to the 31st Punjab Infantry which had only three white officers besides the colonel left. So, so we know that Winston had, uh, you know, a, a real, um, let's say, drive to put himself where he wants to be. <laughs> and and uh, you're going to see as we go through this, this chapter that it didn't always work the way he wanted it. But they just said, look, you're going to the 31st Punjab Infantry, and he, he he said like there was only three other white officers, so so they're basically it's it's the the the, uh, the Punjabis that are you know in the military there. He says I have served officially as a regimental officer in peace or war altogether with the fourth, fourth Hussars. We we know about that. He said the thirty first Punjab Infantry, the twenty first Lancers, the South African Light Horse, the Oxfordshire Yeomanry. 
the second Grandier Guards, the Royal Scots Fusiliers, and lastly, lastly with the Oxfordshire Artillery. Very varied were the conditions in these different units in Asia, Africa, Europe, but, he says, this Punjab infantry business was the most peculiar of all. <laughs> so, so you can see that, I mean, he, he really, as a soldier, Winston Churchill really moved around quite a bit. And, but he said, man, the Punjab stuff was, it's weird. He says, although a cavalry officer, I had, of course, been trained in infantry drill and at, at Sandhurst and considered myself professionally competent in all minor operations or major two for the matter of that. The language difficulty was, however, more serious. I could hardly speak a word to the native soldiers who were perforce committed in the scarcity of officers to my direction. <laughs> so, so he's upset because he doesn't speak the language and he gets the, <laughs> he gets stuck with people he can't speak to. You know, the Punjabis, you know. And so, so it's, it's really interesting. He says the language difficulty was, however, more, uh, serious. I could hardly speak a word to the native soldiers who were perforce committed in the scarcity of officers to my direction. I had to proceed almost entirely by signals, gestures, and dumb crambo. Now, I don't know what dumb crambo means, but it's obviously he couldn't speak any Punjabi, so he's got crambo. Now, here's how he kind of explains it. He says, to these I added three words, marrow, which means kill, chalo, get on, and tally-ho, which speaks for itself. In these circumstances, there could hardly be said to be the intimate connection between the company commander and his men, which the drill books enjoin. So he's saying is, there's no class about, <laughs> you know, being an officer over Punjabis. <laughs> there's no class for that. He says, however, in one way or another, we got through without mishap three or four skirmishes, which I cannot dignify by the name of actions, but which were nevertheless both instructive and exciting to the handful of men who are, are engaged in them. I must have done it all by moral influence. And he says, uh, so, so he just, he, he, uh, he let his morality influence him instead of going off the beam. He says, although I could not enter very fully into their thoughts and feelings, I developed a regard for the Punjabis. There was no doubt they liked to have a white officer among them when fighting, and they watched him carefully to see how things were going. If you grinned, they grinned. So I grinned industriously. <laughs> Meanwhile, I dispatched accounts of the campaign, both by telegram and letter to the Pioneer and also to the Daily Telegraph. And so, so the thing... It's important here now. It's not so much what was going on with the Punjabis, but we we can't forget that we have to remember that Winston Churchill was actually writing news about what was happening in India, and it was going to the Pioneer and to the Daily Telegraph. And the 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 thing about this chapter of the Terror Expedition, it really there's a big change here that we have to see uh, of what happens with with Winston Churchill. And uh, I think it's really, you know, you're probably going to suspect it as we go through it. He says, I now had good hopes of being permanently attached to the Malaccan field force and of roaming around these valleys for some time. He says, however, the character of the operation changed 
The tale of the 16th of September had been spread far and wide among the tribesmen, and of course the Mammoods probably made out that they had a great success. They exaggerated the number of our slain and no doubt declared that their operations were proceeding according to a plan. We said the same, but they did not read our newspapers. And so, so remember now, he's writing to the newspapers what's really happening there. And of course, the, the, uh, the tribesmen, they have their own view, but they're not getting it written up in, in newspapers. He said, at any rate, the whole frontier region was convulsed with excitement. And at the end of September, the far more powerful Afridi tribes joined the revolt. Now, the, the Afridi tribe is more deeply into Pakistan. And so, so you can see that, uh, you know, they probably got more soldier, soldiers that could wield swords <laughs> really well. And, uh, you know, they, they were more, um, let's say into the, um, maybe the, the lifestyle of the Pakistanis. And, uh, you know, they, they're probably more Arabic. It says, uh, the, the Afridis, uh, live in Tira, a region of tremendous mountains lying to the north of Peshawar and to the east of the Khyber Pass. The mountains of Tira are higher and steeper than those on the Malakan side, and the valleys in Tira are V-shaped instead of flat-bottomed. This greatly adds to the advantages of the tribesmen and to the difficulties of regular troops. So, so they were moving further in, into like uh, Afghanistan, that, that area, Pakistan, and they were getting into more, even more dangerous territory because of the just the geography of it. He said, this greatly adds to the advantage of the tribesmen and to the difficulties of regular troops. In a valley much larger and accessibly only by the V-shaped gorges through the mountain walls, this is called Tira Maidan, and one may think of it as the center of the, the maze at Hampton Court. Now, what, what he's talking about, Hampton Court, he's talking about Henry VIII's palace, and I've had the opportunity to go there, and it, it is just an absolutely beautiful facility. And, uh, you know, he had his own, uh, let's say he had, had his own auditorium with his own stage. So he had, you know, uh, Shakespeare plays performed right in Hampton Court. You know, and it, it's, I've been in there and I actually saw a Shakespeare, part of a Shakespeare play in there. And, uh, uh, but, but that area is just full of, I mean, the Hampton Court is just the gardens in it, the, the shrubbery in it. It's just absolutely stunning. And so, so he's saying this Tira Maiden, you know, it, it, it must be really a beautiful place. It says, the government of India, in their wisdom, now determined to send an expedition to Tira Maiden. Here they would find all the granaries, herds, and principal habitations of the Afridi tribes. These could all be destroyed and the tribesmen together with their women and children driven up to the higher mountains in the depth of winter, where they would certainly be very uncomfortable. In order to inflict this chastisement, two whole divisions of three brigades, let's say 35,000 men, together with the large forces upon the communications and at the base, would be required. This army was accordingly mobilized and concentrated about, about Peshwar, and Kohat and preparatory to invading Tira. No white troops had ever yet reached the Maiden. The operations were considered to be most serious undertaken on the frontier since the Afghan War 
and the command was entrusted to an officer of the highest distinction and experience, Sir William Lockhart. Sir Blood, on the other hand, was to remain holding the tribes in check on the Malacan side. Our active operations thus came to an end, and about the same time, reserve white officers of the Punjabis came up to fill the vacancies in their regiment. So, guess what Winston wants to do now? Because he's out. He's out of a job. He's not with the Punjabis anymore. He says, I therefore turned my eyes to the Tira Expeditionary Force and made strenuous efforts to be incorporated in it. However, I knew no one in high authority on that side. Colonel Ian Hamilton indeed commanded one of the brigades and would certainly have helped. Unlikely, he was thrown from his pony, marching through the Coet Pass, broke his leg, lost his brigade, missed the campaign, and nearly broke his heart. So so the one guy that could help get him where he wants fell off his horde, broke his leg. You know, he's, he's not going to be any help to Winston. He, he said, uh, uh, he said, while I was in this weak position detached from one force and yet not hooked to onto another, my colonel far away in southern India began to press for my return. In spite of Sir Bindon Blood's goodwill, I fell between two stools and finished up at Bangalore. <laughs> so, so guess what? Poor Winston. He's out of the, you know, he doesn't have to worry about the Punjabis. He doesn't have to worry about all that. He's got to go back to Bangalore. Uh, <laughs> it, that wasn't a good, it wasn't good for him. Listen to what he says. He says, my brother officers, when I returned to them, were extremely civil but I found a very general opinion that I had enough leave and should now do a steady spell of routine duty. <laughs> so all the excitement is over. He'd have to worry about any swordsmen coming after him. He said the regiment was busy with autumn training and about to proceed on maneuvers, and so less than a fortnight after hearing the bullets whistle in the Malmond Valley, I found myself popping off blank cartridges in sham fights 2,000 miles away. It seemed quite odd to hear the cracking of rifles on all sides and nobody taking cover or bobbing their heads. Apart from this, the life was very much the same. It was just as hot, just as thirsty. We marched and bivouacked day after day. Loving country, my sore, with splendid trees and innumerable sheets of stored water, we were maneuvering around a great mountain called Nundidrug, where the gold mines are, and there we were. There were groves of trees whose leaves are brilliant scarlet. And <laughs> so, can you imagine how he's feeling, right? <laughs> he says there was certainly nothing to complain of, but as the weeks and months passed away, I watched with wistful eyes the newspaper accounts of the Tira campaign. So, so, come on, he's not happy. He's really upset. The two divisions had plunged into the mountains and ultimately, after much fighting and casualties in these days, thought numerous, had reached the central plain or basin of Tira. The next move was for them to come back before the worst of the winter had set in. They did promptly, but none too soon. The indignant and now triumphant Aphrodites ran along the mountain ridges, firing with deadly skill upon the long columns, uh, defiling painfully down the riverbed and forced to ford its freezing waters 10 to 12 times in every march. Hundreds of soldiers and thousands of animals were shot, and the retreat of the 2nd Division down the Barra Valley was ragged in the extreme. Indeed, at times, 
So we heard privately it, it looked much like a rout than a victorious withdrawal of a punitive force. There was no doubt who had been, who had had the punishment, nor who would have had to pay the bill. 35,000 troops hunting and being hunted by Ephrates around these gorges for a couple of months with 20,000 more guarding their communications make a nasty total when computed in rupees. Black were the brows of the wise acres of Calcutta and loud were the complaints of the liberal opposition at home. And so, so things did not go well and Winston was not there. And I think Winston probably later in his life realized he was being preserved for the future. And uh, he does believe, he did believe very much that God had protected him from many things. But listen to this. I, I can't wait to talk to this guy sometime. <laughs> I did not cry to, cry to sleep about the misadventures of the Tyr expedition. After all, they had been very selfish in not letting me come with them. <laughs> so he says, so I didn't cry for them. I'm mad. They didn't bring me with them. I thought they would have to go in again in the spring, and I redoubled my efforts to join them. My mother cooperated energetically from her end. In my interest, she left no wire unpulled, no stone unturned, no cutlet uncooked. Under my direction, she had laid vigorous siege both to Lord Wolseley and Lord Roberts. The fortresses resisted obdurately, Lord Roberts wrote. I would with great pleasure help your son, but it would be no use my communicating with General Lockhart as George White is all-powerful and as he refused to allow Winston to join Bloodstaff blood after having previously served with an officer in the Malacan Field Force, I feel sure he would not consent to his being sent with the Tira Field Force. And he said, I would tell, I would telegraph to Sir, Sir George White, but I am certain that under the circumstances he would resent my doing so. So, so, so Winston is not getting what he wants. All right. So do you think he's going to give up? No, he's not going to give up. So he goes on to say, Meanwhile, I was tethered in my garrison in Bangalore at Christmas. However, it was easy to obtain 10 days leave. 10 days is not long. It was, in fact, long enough to reach the frontier and return. But I knew better than to present myself at the base headquarters of the field force without having prepared the ground beforehand. The military pussycat is a delightful animal as long as you know how to keep clear of her claws. But once excited or irritated, she is capable of making herself extremely unpleasant. So so anyway, he decided he was going to take it into his own hands to get some support. So he's, he's on his way to Calcutta to endeavor the seat of the Indian government to negotiate for a situation at the front. It took, a, it took that time, three and a half days, continuous railway traveling to go from Bangalore to Calcutta, with which an equal period for return left about 60 hours to transact the all-important business. The Viceroy Lord Algin, under whom I was afterwards to serve as Undersecretary of State in the Colonial Office, extended large hospitality to young officers who had suitable introductions. I was royally entertained so and so well-mounted that I won, I won the fortnightly point-to-point point in which the garrison of Calcutta were wont at the time to engage. And so he's there, and he, he wants to get, you know, get into the force. And says, uh, he said, uh, this was all very well, but my main business made no advance. I had, of course, used every resource at my disposal before I came on the spot. 
and I took the best advice of the highest authorities to whom I had access. They all agreed that the best chance was to beard the adjutant general, an extremely disagreeable person whose name I am glad to have forgotten. <laughs> so, so uh, again, it doesn't work. He went all this way. He's, I'm just skipping down. It says, from the commander-in-chief, Sir George White, downwards, they were all extremely civil, but their friendliness seemed to carry with it a suggestion that there were some subjects better left unmentioned. And so at the end of my 60 hours, I again uh, had to clamber into the train and toil back discomforted to Bangalore. So he had to go back to Bangalore. Now, it took all that time to get to this point, but because of all this, Winston makes one of the biggest change in his life. And he said, during this winter, I wrote my first book. And so he said, I learned from England that my letters to the Daily Telegraph had been well received. Although written anonymously from a young officer, they had attracted attention. The pioneer, too, was complimentary. Taking these letters as the foundation, I resolved to build a small literary house. My friends told me that Lord Fincastle was also writing the story of the expedition. It was a race whose book would be finished first. I soon experienced a real pleasure in the task of writing, and the three or four hours in the middle of every day, often devoted to slumber or cards, saw me industriously at work. And so, if you remember, when he first got to Bangalore, all he did was study. You know, he studied, studied, studied. Now he's had all those experiences, you know, could have been killed, was not killed. Now he decides, you know what? I really like writing. <laughs> and uh, uh, he, he really put himself to it. And that's what we have to learn. If we, if we get something we really like, go for it. He said, I soon experienced a real pleasure in the task of writing. And there, and the three or four hours in the middle of every day, often devoted to slumber cards, saw me industriously at work. The manuscript was finished shortly after Christmas and sent home to my mother to sell. She arranged for its publication by Longman's, and having contracted the habit of writing, I embarked on fiction. So now he gets one he gets one book published. He says, oh, I'm going to start on fiction. As he said, I thought I would try my hand at a novel. I found this much quicker work than the accurate chronicle of facts. Once started, the tale flowed on of itself. I chose a theme, a revolt in some imaginary Balkan or South American republic, and traced the fortunes of a liberal leader who overthrew an arbitrary government only to be swallowed up by a socialist revolution. He said, my brother officers were much amused by the story as it developed and made various suggestions for stimulating the love interest, which I was not able to accept. But we had plenty of fighting and politics interspersed with such philosophizing as I was capable of, all leading to the grand finale of an ironclad fleet, forcing a sort of Dardanelles to quell the rebellious capital. This novel was finished in about two months, it was eventually published in the Macmillan's magazine under the title of Savarola. And I actually have a copy of Savarola. I've never read it yet, but I have a copy of it. And being subsequently reprinted in various editions, yielded, yielded in all over several years about 700 pounds, I have consistently urged my friends to abstain from reading it. <laughs> it is considered one of his worst. So, so uh, anyway... He says, meanwhile, my book on the frontier war had been actually published. So, so he got his 
the Malakin Field Force published. And I looked for it today on Amazon, and it's still there. You can still find it. So uh, and now I'm deciding what our next book is going to be. Um, but but let me let me say this is it's um uh there had been some comments about him being indifferent, untidy, slovenly, bad, very bad, etc. But now he was uh, actually getting praise for writing. He says, one letter which I received gave me extreme pleasure, and I print it here as it shows the extraordinary kindness and consideration for young people which the Prince of Wales always practiced. So remember how he had ticked off the Prince of Wales by being late at a dinner. But now the Prince of Wales is reading his stuff. And he writes, Dear Winston, and this is from Marlborough House. This was April twenty second, 1898. I cannot resist writing a few lines to congratulate you on the success of your book. I have read it with the greatest possible interest, and I think the descriptions and the language generally excellent. Everybody is reading it, and I only hear it spoken of with praise. Having now seen active service, you will you will wish to see more and have as great a chance, I am of sure, winning the Victoria Cross as Finkessel had. And I hope you will not follow the example of the later, who I regret to say intends leaving the army in order to go to Parliament. And so, so the 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 thing is, he goes on to say, you have plenty of time before you, and should certainly stick to the army before adding MP to your name, hoping that you are flourishing. I am very sincerely yours, and that's he said he he uh, signs it A E. And so, so here, the 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 whole thrust now of the the Tira expedition uh, chapter is basically that Winston Churchill becomes a writer, and I think it's 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 a it's really really very fascinating. Um, he goes on to say, then there was no more leave for me until the regimental polo team went north in the middle of March to play in the annual cavalry tournament. I was fortunate enough to win a place. And in due course, found myself at Merritt, the great cantonment where the contests usually take place. We were, I think, without doubt, the second best team of all who competed. We were defeated by the victors, the famous Durham Light Industry. They were the only, or infantry, excuse me, they were the only infantry regiment that had ever won the Cavalry Cup. They were never beaten. All the crack regiments went down before them. So, so even when you're riding, there's always time for polo. <laughs> that's 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 the, that's the big deal here with uh, with Winston, and so uh, uh, he said the the finest native teams shared a similar fate. All the wealth of uh, Golconda and the Raj Putana, all the pride of their maharajas and the skill of their splendid players, were brushed friendly aside by these invincible foot soldiers. So so even the British, uh, you know, could realize that the poor. Indians and uh, their teams, their best teams, were wiped out by you know this uh, this really good polo team, and so so anyway, well, that's all the time we have for today's program. On our next program, we will finish uh, chapter twelve, the, titled the Tira Expedition, and uh, but then I think uh, next time I'll be announcing our next book that we want to read because we're going to be coming to the end. I'm going to come to the end of this book. So you can buy My Early Life 
at Amazon.com, you may be able to find a good used copy at abebooks.com, and you may be able to find a copy in your local bookstore. Of course, you can also check your local library. So please write me any comments you may have to jbl at pcog.org. Now you can follow JBL on Twitter at jbliterature1. You can also follow JBL on Facebook. Simply search for just the best literature. Now, also remember, I do have another podcast called Shakespeare's Royal Education. Uh, if you enjoy this podcast, why don't you tune into that one as well? So, until next time, keep reading. You've been listening to Just the Best Literature on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG. Streaming online at kpcg.fm and thetrumpet.com.